Hey guys, and welcome to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. The first podcast to bring you the local fishing report for Alabama's lakes and rivers, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. I'm your host, Nick Williams, and this week's show is brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Are you frustrated by your typical hunting and fishing magazines? Are you tired of reading content meant for guys up north or in the Midwest? Don't get left behind following the guidance of guys who don't hunt and fish in your home state. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and become a better southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Books A Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. Alrighty, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report. Got two exciting guests coming up today. The first one is going to be David Graham with Boundless Pursuit LLC. He is an avid rough fish fisherman. He's also a freelancer who's written about some of his favorite species, some small publications you may have heard of, Outdoor Life, Field and Stream, that sort of thing, just real small publications. So, uh, David, <laughs> how you doing today, sir? I can't complain. I appreciate you, uh, having me on here always a good day when you leave work and get to sit down and talk fishing so appreciate you and that's it that's it yeah i, I like it i can't say i've left work but i definitely enjoy uh, doing the podcast yeah. <laughs> every week getting getting a break to just sit down and talk about fishing instead of staring at the computer screen so tell me a little bit i guess first for for some of our listeners here who who may not have heard the term they just fish for bass crappie catfish inshore species and stuff like that. What is a rough fish? You know, there's a lot of different names for it. It's like just a category of species that are, you know, you can call it if you want to be more PC, like non-traditional game fish or less desired species. Or, uh, you know, if you travel into certain neighborhoods, they might call them trash fish. But, you know, you have your categories of sport species and then your fish that are your others. So I wouldn't even necessarily, you know, just to just to throw this out there, I wouldn't necessarily say that I only fish for those. I'm just a guy that fishes for everything that's available to me, kind of in the spirit of testing my well-roundedness as an angler. And so that kind of crosses over those boundaries, you know, those, I don't know, categorical boundaries. I don't like the idea that one fish is worthy of sporty pursuit while another is not, especially if it's a fish that can grow 40, 50, 100 pounds. It's typically like your gars, your suckers, fish like that, smaller catfish species, bowfin. It depends on where you're at regionally, but basically everything other than a bass, crappie, bluegill, and striper, and <laughs> your typical sport fish. Sure, and I like what you said there, that, that one, you considered yourself to be more just a fisherman who, you know, not not pigeonholed into a certain species, but then also talking about how just just because it's not a conventional sport fish does not mean that it's not a sporting fish. Because I can tell you, and, and anybody who fishes for them will tell you, there's there's usually what makes a sport fish, you think what makes a sport fish, and it's a fish that fights well, or it's a fish that, you know, we regard as a particularly beautiful fish, or as a particularly tasty fish, or it's a fish that's just difficult to fish for, right? Like, people love to talk about how picky a trout is about a certain fly, right? People will go to great lengths to fool those fish, and I can tell you as somebody who's uh, fished for carp, sucker fish, red horse, buffalo fish, that's a tricky animal. If you've got artificial lures, <laughs> they're, oh, uh, goodness. They're, yeah. they're pretty, they're pretty tough customers and you've got to really, uh, have your wits about you and, and a fair amount of luck on your side. And they, and they definitely fulfill the fights pretty good yeah. criteria. When you're talking about native species of fish, it's like, it seems like a no brainer. The, the idea, I understand if something is less desirable, just on a personal level, that's, that's fine. If I'm fishing for a bowfin, for instance, and I catch a bunch of bullheads, I'm not going to be happy about it, but you know, you if you really genuinely appreciate the fishery that you have and the trophy specimens of the fish that you like to chase, you have got to have an intricate understanding of the the biodiversity as a whole of the system that you're fishing. I'll tell you, and like, and I think most genuine anglers would agree, you can become a way way better, let's say, bass angler. So it's it just behooves anybody that wants to get better at what they like doing to get out there and understand, you know, how the system of their watershed or their lakes, rivers, or streams function as a whole, and, and understand how every single species plays a role in in making it that fishery that you love so much. So, you know, you're really doing yourself a disservice to have the mentality that one fish shouldn't be there. Because in a lot of cases, you take out the least desirable fish from your favorite fishery, you're probably creating a vacuum that's going to create, I don't know, you never know what the cause and effects could be. Could be beneficial, could be catastrophic. 
I agree with you. I like what you said about it, it making you like to, to me. And this sounds like a truism, but the more you fish, the better you'll get at it. Ideally, like fishing makes you a better fisherman and, you know, f- fishing for quote unquote rough fish, trash fish. I, I picked up a lot of my skills as an angler, just catching stunted bluegill and in, in the creek behind my house. And it, and it taught me the basics about how fish relate to current structure how it changes based on you know changes based on water clarity water temperature time of the year fishing pressure you know you you can you can learn a lot if you're wetting a hook you're probably learning and and i think there's also something something that that i've noticed right is that some waterways have a species that is more prevalent and it kind of comes down to an opportunity thing like uh bowfin here in the mobile tensaw delta where i live we have a very good bowfin fishery and I, I found that out after I moved here. Like our bass fishery is, it's not terrible. I know some local guys who would say, well, we have a good fishery. But in, in relation to other fisheries, uh, our bass don't get as large uh, from what biologists tell me due to saltwater intrusion. And it seems like the bowfin are a lot more tolerant of it. So you can go out in a day, and I've seen a lot of tournaments here in my backyard where a 12, 13 pound five fish limit wins you a tournament, which is not really anything special on places like further north on the Tennessee River or something like that. But you can go for our bowfin rodeo that we do. And uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, you are definitely not going to place with a with a 12 pound bag. We'll just put it that way. Then bowfin, they, they tend to do a little bit better. And that's actually how I I first found Boundless Pursuit and and first started seeing your name crop up. And it's changed a little bit. We talked about this. It seems like it's slowly changing. It's changed since I got into it. But when I first started looking, there was no information on bowfin. And the first one that I ever caught, I had no idea what it was. And I took pictures of it and showed it to friends. They didn't know what it was. And these weren't neophytes in the fishing world. These were people who, you know, had bass fished a good bit and just not in areas where bowfin were prevalent. And it really, it blew my mind when it took my bait, you know, it hit that spinner bait. And I I just knew, you know, I'd caught, I'd caught a 10 pound bass. I just knew. Yeah. Yeah. then I pulled it in and I'm looking at that thing and I'm like, oh my gosh, what is that? And what is it? I just go, oh, it's got teeth. I'm like, I didn't know that fish here in the river had teeth. I've never seen a fish in the river with teeth outside of gar. So I find that interesting and I'm glad to talk to you because I've really grown to love fishing for bowfin and I'm not particularly good at it. I always tell my listeners, I remind them I don't profess to be an expert. Um, I try to find the experts, talk about fishing and try to learn from them. So tell me, for for me, when I started fishing for bowfin, it was kind of a target of opportunity thing. What got you into fishing for bowfin particularly? Because I've seen some pictures of you with some really nice bowfin from different parts of the country. Kind of the same thing. I, I, it goes way back to, I think I caught my first one around year 2000, which I would have been a 13-year-old kid at the time. And it was just, a, I think, the same thing. It was like a timing deal for me. That was the age where I was really just kind of coming into fishing. Like it was a, it was that transitional period that I think we as anglers go through where it's like, you know, it's, it's just something you do maybe with your brothers or your dad or the neighborhood kids. You grab a few rods and go down to the pond to skip rocks and cast a few lines. But, you know, during that phase where there was like that tipping point where you go from just being a guy that goes fishing to turning into a fisherman. And I think there's a difference. The bowfin was there. And I really think that that, for whatever reason, was a catalyst for that change in my mind. Because I was just a, I was just, you know, a swamp stomping kid by nature. I think it's an, an, I think it's an inherent thing. I think it's a built in characteristic that some of us have where we just naturally have an affinity that takes us into the woods. Like what you do from there, I, I don't know, you know, how you, take form from there is anyone's guess. But for me, I loved catching snakes and turtles and seeing lizards. You know, I was just that kid. I was like Arliss from Old Yeller. I'm like that that crazy nature kid. And so, um, you know, my mom would drop me off at this swamp in southwest Arkansas where we were living at the time. And um, I knew what a bowfin was because I was just an inquisitive and just naturally interested kid. That's just that's how I am by nature. I'm an investigative person. I want to know about the unknown things or the curious looking animals. Some people are that way. Some people are naturally apprehensive towards things that look you know, spooky with teeth. But my brother had this poster on his wall of like the South, you know, freshwater fishes of South Carolina. You know, we're in Arkansas, but he's got a South Carolina poster. We've lived all over the country. I'll just put that out there. (laughs) But I remember seeing the bowfin and, you know, 
when you're coming up and fishing, you understand what a bluegill is. You understand panfish and catfish and bass. They all sort of have the same looks about them, the same type of, I don't know. They're structured the same. Fish are supposed to look a certain way. A couple dorsal spines, a big mouth, big fat lips. But the bowfin is just one of those fish that stands apart. It just, it draws interest. You know, if it's sitting in an aquarium full of bass and bluegill and crappie, and then you get this reptilian looking fish with sharp teeth and a long undulating dorsal fin swim by, uh, you know, a child that's standing there with his face glued to the aquarium that doesn't know one fish from the next nine times out of 10 is going to be fixated on the rhythmic movement of that thing's fin, it, you know, because it stands apart. So I knew what they were. I, I'd seen them in posters and I was fishing at this little swamp in Arkansas and, and I hooked one or uh, excuse me. No, I hooked one later. I found a dead one on the bank and, you know, we can go way down the culture of how Bofin end up dead on the bank in the South. <laughs> but I saw one dead on the bank and, you know, again, it's like, it's a culture thing down there. See, if you catch one, you're supposed to kill them. And, you know, I found one dead. And for me, the curiosity was like, oh my gosh, like those things live in here. I've always been the type that wasn't going to put parameters and barriers on my experience in fishing. If it is willing to eat a lure or a bait, I want to encounter it. I want to like test myself against it. Why other anglers would not have the same mindset is one of the great mysteries to me of sport fishermen who would willingly and intentionally deprive themselves the opportunity to pursue different kinds of fish and measure their skill against as many different participants as they can. But anyway, so I caught one that same day and uh, I just, I can't, Put, I really can't give an exact reason why, but it was just this deeply impressionable moment for me as a young kid that's, you know, I had I had researched something to a degree. I knew what it was. I tried to catch it and it and it happened for me. So I think my experience, you know, fast forward, I'm 37 years old now, but I still and I've traveled all over the place to catch different kinds of fish and freshwater, saltwater, different countries. But there's something about returning to the swamp for me to chase both and that just I think there's a nostalgia behind it that it's like very grounding to me. It's like it brings me back to being that kid. And I think sometimes anglers, especially in this day and age, need to return to that because we get caught up in, oh, how many likes and views does my Instagram post have? And, you know, you know, I mean, I, I, I need to reset, but bowfin have just always been one of those fish that I will say from a sporting standpoint, aren't necessarily the most challenging to draw a bite from. You don't have to be, you know, it's, it's not a real difficult battle of wits against that species of fish. It's more the, the pursuit. It's more the environments that it takes you into because they're often found in the far back ways of the, the deep swamp where you're going to encounter more water birds and more wildlife and you're going to be further away from boats flying by and things like that. And it's just, to me, it's, it's, it's more, it's like an all encompassing experience, but you know, it's also in, in, and I'll, I'll pause for additional follow-ups, but it's, um, you know, when you learn the history of the species, if you're the kind of person that actually values North America's native fauna, you cannot help but just have this deep admiration for the species that has come so far through unimaginable, almost impossible to to quantify odds to still be here and we be able to enjoy them as anglers. It's it's a it's a remarkable animal. And I think unfortunately a lot of people look past those facts and the biology behind the fish and and only look at the fact that I I wanted to catch this. And I caught that instead. And that's not what I wanted. It's, you know, we get too selfish, I think. And we don't appreciate the, the whole picture of uh, of our fisheries. I think you've got some really good points there. And, and I, I had to chuckle to myself when you were talking early on, you know, being a kid and, and seeing a bowfin and going, what is that? Because yeah. <laughs> I was I was recently with, with my family up at the Chattanooga Aquarium. I don't know if you've ever been there, but they've got a really good Tennessee River exhibit because uh, you're I mean, you're just right there. Like you can sit there in the aquarium and you can look out the river and see the Tennessee River as it flows through Chattanooga. And, you know, they also have fish from, you know, they have a huge saltwater reef display there at the aquarium um, they have some south american tanks so you've got all these quote-unquote exotic fish and then you have the tennessee river system and it's got you know red-eared sunfish bluegill crappie bass catfish all the fish that you know as a as a southern outdoorsman you're kind of used to seeing mm -hmm. and it was something that i noticed was that these kids 
who were there or the people you could tell looking at them, you know, probably didn't grow up, you know, fishing. They probably didn't have a, a boat parked in the garage back at their house. Like when you would see this tank, these little kids would would have their eyes glued to these gar and bowfin. Yeah. Because they were huge. And like the you said, they're just, they're, just, they're just monstrous and strange looking. You know, they just look totally alien. And their their dads would be sitting there, you know, looking at each other going, oh, man, look at that crappie right there. You know, how'd you, yeah. like, how'd you like to catch a live well full of them? Look at that bass right there. You think you got one in your pond that big yet? And and the kids just didn't care. They're like, yeah, that's just a fish. You know, tell tell me more. Like they were trying to find the placard. Like what in the world is that great big four foot long toothy thing in there? And yes. uh, and and what you were pointing out, like they live here. The cool thing about them is you find them in either the nastiest, you know, most stagnant, just ripe, bubbling backwaters of the swamp. You know, far far away from where most people take their bass boats. Uh, you know, they'll be back there gulping air at the base of the cypress knees and, and kind of living in, in gumbo mud. Or you find them in just these these pretty little clear backwater streams and they'll be the biggest yep. fish in there. You know, you'll you'll have a, a, a little creek that you're wade fishing in. And next thing you know, something hits your spinnerbait and, you know, he's almost three feet long. You know, it's like, where is, where did that come from? So right. the, the areas that they live in, it's the type places where you're wading a creek and jumping deer on the riverbanks or you're back in a swamp and, you know, there's, there's a 10 foot alligator, you know, cruising, following your kayak. Like it, it really fishing for them. Once I started targeting them specifically, um, I, I would start going out trips looking for them and you find, like you're saying, you're in these areas and it, it goes from. It is a different feel. It's like you're saying, being a kid and, and going and chasing, catching lizards and snakes and just anything you can get your grubby mitts on, you know, right, just like, right. oh, what is this? You know, what what is this thing? Like, it's very different. Um, And, and we do have, I think we have one of the oldest formalized bowfin tournaments or Grenell Rodeo. I'm not sure how old it is, but it goes back at least to the early 90s. It's as old as I am, even though we have strong bass fishing culture, but it's a... Uh, they're definitely an interesting fish, and and I I've dove into the rabbit hole after catching one on kind of the the habits and the history of the species, the morphology, and that sort of thing. Give me just kind of a, a quick overview. I, th- I think most of our listeners are pretty familiar with the basics of what they are, but but kind of tell me real quick, kind of what differentiates bowfin from you know some of those typical fishy fish like you were talking about guild species. So it's the only existing member of a, a form of fish that that traces back. And again, people will casually throw this out, and I try to always do them as much justice as I can. But you know, we're we as human beings are so small. I mean, we just we can't we can't fully wrap our minds around an a, a, an amount of time that goes back to the late Jurassic, early Cretaceous period. I mean, you're talking an unbelievable amount of time where back when they had cousins and they had different ammiforms, the bowfin that we know today is the only one left. But again, so this is a fish that's been around for millions and millions of years. I mean, you're talking before all the most popular species of game fish even hit the first rung of the evolutionary ladder. I mean, they they weren't even a thought in that process of evolution during the long established existence of this species of fish. So therefore, I think it's kind of like negates this idea that they're threatening to populations of largemouth bass because bass came into existence, you know, during an established existence of bowfin. They, they couldn't have even come into the picture if bowfin really threatened their very existence like that. It, you know, it, you know what I mean? So you're talking about a fish that survived, you know, again, we can have debates on, on, you know, how all this world came to be, but you know, you're talking about a fish that survived the catastrophic event that killed off 70% of plants and animals and insects. And I mean, everything that was alive to include plant matter, 70% of it wiped off the face of the earth. They survived that. Then they survived continental drift, ice ages. I mean, they just, uh, what they've come through is incredible. So when you think of the different kinds of animals that they swam alongside that are no longer here, I mean, you look at some of these prehistoric monsters and they were tough enough to outlast that. You, you can't help but to appreciate these fish. So 
that is a large reason why you find them in swamps and why you find them in these areas. They have a lot of survival adaptations. You know, maybe you could say they're like the cockroach of fishing, of fish. <laughs> that might not be the most appealing thing, but this the fish are just survivors. And the reason that you see them proliferate in, you know, areas where there's there's not a lot of oxygen in the water. I won't say a lot of people say that's just the water that they like. You will find both in the clearest, purest, nicest water. The only common denominator is they like to be near vegetation. So generally they're in or near shallower water with heavy vegetation because it's an ambush predator. They need somewhere to hide. But they do proliferate in those kind of areas where there's their backwaters and, you know, they other fish just don't want to be there. It's a survival adaptation. It's not a negative point. But, you know, we as anglers who may find ourselves back in the swamp looking for crappie, looking for bass and find that it's completely overrun with bowfin. You know, a lot of times people default to, well, the bowfin killed everything and not understanding that, well, that's not the case. This is just a more this is just an arena where they're more, uh, con, you know, they're more equipped to survive than everything else. It's a more favorable condition to the bowfin. You're just going to have to move somewhere else if you don't want to catch them. But yeah, so they, they've got like a real highly sensitive sense of smell, the ability to gulp surface oxygen. That's why sometimes and especially the real oxygen deprived backwaters, you'll see them coming up and breaking surface and gulping and things like that. These are just survival adaptations that that make them, I don't know, I, I like to think a little tougher than all of the other fish. But from an angling standpoint, my mind goes straight to, okay, you want to talk about a fish that survived and outlasted dinosaurs, literally. You know, what qualities and characteristics does this thing have that gave it a fighting chance against that? Because I want to feel that on the end of my line, you know, as this. I don't know. The appeals just seems built into me. Now, I mean, if you're more interested in catching a fish with fancy, beautiful colors, I don't know. This is maybe not the fish for you. This is a an absolute barroom brawler with tremendous character and power that's just generally going to be near heavy timber, snags, weeds, limbs, horrible stuff. I don't know. Me, I, I like a good fight. And so it's it, it, it's got all the characteristics, I would think, that check the boxes for, you know, whatever it is, apparently in 2023, that defines sport fish. <laughs> and that that gets us kind of into the meat and potatoes of this discussion. So you were you were talking about how, you know, you would you would describe this fish as a as a barroom brawler. And, and that has definitely been been my experience is once you once you get used to them, like at first you'll hook into one and and the first. I don't know, dozen I caught, I would always think, oh, that's that's a big, big bass. And then you kind of develop a feel for, ah, it's a bowfin. Because they they do pull hard. Um, they're not as acrobatic as a largemouth bass, in my experience, although they will jump. But they will make a beeline toward thick cover. They're strong. Um, they're toothy, which is something that a lot of freshwater anglers aren't used to having to account for with their tackle set up. And it's been my experience that they're never really tired. Um, they they do have a pretty good tolerance for, you know, warmer water. Um, I guess it kind of helps that they can breathe air. So a lot of times even you get one in the net and you're taking pictures of them, they can be extraordinarily uncooperative. And and they're just big fish, right? I mean, I think I think in Alabama the state record is something like twenty pounds. And I've I've caught several even in the 10 pound range, I mean, they, they will put a bow in a rod. Like they're definitely not something that I personally prefer to chase with one of the new, uh, super sensitive, uh, super delicate graphite setups or anything like that. So kind of walk me through and, and you do a lot better job of getting on really what I would consider to be big bow fin than I do. Talk to me a little bit about your tackle. How, what, what's your recommended rod and reel? What kind of setup do you recommend for tangling? with with a fish that big and that strong because i mean you look at them and they're just a big meat tube i mean there's they're all muscle well what i typically use i mean it kind of depends if you're going to pursue them proactively or passively if i'm going to go fishing let's just start i'll say let's start with the artificial approach because i think that probably tickles people's fancy a little bit better than baiting and waiting <laughs> um the difficult thing with bowfin when it comes to artificial fishing and a lot of guys will say, Oh, if you want to catch both and all you got to do is go fishing for bass. I'm telling you right now, I, I, 
challenge to anybody to go out this weekend or the next or you know whenever's best prime time bass fishing and try specifically to go pursue bowfin of you know over 30 inches with lures you'll find yourself catching a bunch of bass everything is easy to catch on accident so i just want to establish that uh, it's it's like anything else when i go targeting bowfin i end up catching everything but bowfin when i go i catch everything but what i want to catch um but the common denominator whether it's a big fish the smaller males any of that is that this is a species by nature that's an ambush predator so they they will always be near some sort of cover generally that's being vegetation not always fallen timber but they like they really like to be bedded in and around vegetation so if that's any kind of sawgrass lines or or pad fields things like that uh, it's a species of fish that is basically going to spend most of its day sitting bedded down waiting on an easy meal to come by they're not a proactive species of fish with a great deal of vision that's going to be following schools of bait fish it's just not by nature what they do i won't say that you won't occasionally see them behaving that way so this is a fish that you have to go look for so you've got to familiar familiarize yourself with the kind of setting that they live in then from there obviously if you're going to be pulling fish from deep in and around heavy vegetation uh you're going to want to be using i say at the, at the bare minimum whether you're throwing a bait caster or you're throwing spinning gear braided line that only so you can have a little bit more taut pressure to pull them away from the weeds. Uh, it's not a fish, unfortunately, that you really get to enjoy drag screaming and pulling because you got to get them to the boat quickly. Uh, normally what I'm throwing is like, um, and part of it is probably because I'm in Southwest Florida, but I throw like inshore spinning gear that you'd throw at like snook and redfish and things like that. So a seven foot to seven foot six medium heavy spinning rod. I use usually 40 to 60 pound braided line. And then I'll, I will just tie that direct to, I throw a lot of crawfish patterns for this species of fish. In, in most scenarios, the overwhelming diet of a bowfin is crawfish, especially when you're back in the swamps or around a bunch of timber, they eat a lot of crawfish. It's a species of fish that's normally, and again, I say normally, down at the bottom of the water column, they will come up to the surface and hit topwater lures. Uh, but generally, they're near the bottom of the water. It's also a species of fish that, that has a small bite radius. So if you if you bring a lure past one, especially a fast-moving lure like a rattle trap or like a bass lure, you know, if it comes six feet away from them, generally, they're not going to pursue that lure. Uh, they may be disturbed enough by the vibrations and the rattling sound because they lean really heavily on scent and vibration and very little on what they see. It needs to smell natural and it needs to either have a lot of wobble to it or uh, a lot of flash or something to that effect. But uh, normally I'll throw a lot of crawfish patterns and I'll fish them pretty slowly. Uh, again, because it's a species of fish that normally is not, you're not going to get a reactionary bite at them unless it's within their own body length. So if you get a 30 inch fish, that lure should be within 30 inches of the fish to draw the bite. So for guys that like to add a little bit of challenge to the experience, you know, you could sit there and punch pads all day blind fishing for them, and you'll probably pull a few fish. But you talk about a fish that, you know, again, if you're the type who needs to add a few layers of challenge to your experience, go out and try to sight fish for these things. Because there are many occasions, especially in the spring, where they're up in six inches of water, less than a foot of water. And uh, you talk about a fish that can really blend into its environment. It will test your ability. You know, you can slap your polarized sunglasses on, get up in the front of the boat, and really canvas the water. A lot of times you won't notice these fish until they're right at your feet. So it's a unique fish to try to chase visually and to challenge yourself from that regard. But, uh, yeah, typically I, I don't complicate the lure and the hardware that much because normally, because they're so opportunistic, if you can get something that moves in front of their face <laughs> within a few inches, you'll normally draw the bite. So it's generally have an application that's weedless. You know, that's going to benefit you for obvious reasons. And, th and like a stout braided line 
and just like a stout rod, a medium heavy rod, something that's got some backbone because that initial burst of energy is really just you trying to separate them from the hazard of the timber, the weeds, whatever they want to get you in. It's their instinct to seek cover and concealment. They're going to head right for what's safe. So that first little initial contact is really just getting them away from away from that. So you have to have strong hooks. You'll bend out a lot of hooks, not because they're overwhelmingly powerful, but because you're pulling the fish with no give if you're being smart with it. That's for lures anyway, and we can go down the bait thing as well. And then differentiating, looking for big fish or looking for a lot of fish. I think there's a lot more variables than people realize. I definitely want to do that. Before we do, I have kind of just a quick question. So I recently started doing a little bit of fly fishing, and I had a friend actually come down here who is a much more experienced fly fisherman than me, but he wanted to catch chain pickerel and bowfin which he does not have in his neck of the woods in the quantities that I have. And I told him that I could definitely put him on those species, um, but that I honestly didn't know how they would react to a fly. And we actually had a really good day. Uh, I like to think I did a pretty good job as a guide. Put him on a bunch of chain pickerel. We had some pretty good hookups because I don't know if if you've done a lot of fishing for those, but those are probably the most aggressive fish that I've ever fished for. You talk about like the strike radius, man, like a pickerel, if it's in his zip code. Yeah. (laughs) He's interested in it and he will follow it all the way to the boat, right? Like it's a little teeny tiny muskie. Mm Mm-hmm. The bowfin were much less cooperative that day, so I'm curious, have you ever messed with them with a fly rod, or do you know anybody who does? You got any pointers for that? Yeah, I know several. Uh, that is a, there's a major growing interest from fly anglers in bowfin. I know a few guys have written about them. Uh, familiar names like Blaine Chocolate uh, has specifically done some things on bowfin. You know, he, him being the guy that designed like the Game Changer fly and and fly anglers don't know who Blaine Chocolate is. Uh, some of my good buddies really specialize in it. And it, you're starting to see them get triangulated throughout the country from diehard fly guys. I, I, I got a buddy up in Michigan, David Hurley, that fishes for him on the Great Lakes and the crystal clear flats there. I got a guy to the east in Vermont named Drew Price that's really done a lot for them on Champlain to the point and enough so that Jeremy Wade from River Monsters came out and filmed with him and they fished for both in. Uh, which is, it's, I never thought I'd see the day. And then a little further south, I got a buddy named Grant Alvis, uh, big-time fly fisherman in Virginia in the Chesapeake Bay region. This is a guy who's got 55-inch red drum at his, uh, you know, at his back door, and he finds time out of the year to go chase bowfin right alongside the newcomers, snakeheads. So he's fly fishing for them big time out there. Just talked to a guy on my own personal podcast from the Houston area that's fishing for him in South Texas from fly rods. So definitely they're gaining a lot of popularity with the fly guys. I think because a lot of fly anglers really like that visual pursuit. They like to see their target. And it's a, an especially difficult fish to do that with. They, they present a lot of unique challenges and being that the fly rod, and I'm not a big time fly fisherman myself, but I understand that, you know, this is a fish you have to generally get right over the top of to, to find and put a fly in front of. You're more dapping than fly fishing apparently, and seems to be the general consensus with those guys. But then you lose the backbone of the rod because they're, you know, I don't know what you call that hook set where it just comes up. And the bowfin has got a very tough, durable, hard to penetrate mouth so it's a you know on top of having a hard enough time finding them it's you know then you have okay great congratulations you found them you hooked them it's the amount of fish that you lose that's really you know you can drive yourself crazy because you might hook 10 fish and have them jump spin spiral and death roll and come off at your feet no i mean they'll drive you crazy so definitely a growing interest in the guys that are fly fishing for them but it, uh, it seems like by most accounts most of the guys are Visually looking for them with a sinking crawl pattern and and more so dapping, just just dropping, you know, kind of we can debate whether that's fly fishing or not, but it's on fly gear. And um, yeah, you see a lot of guys fly fishing for them now. I mean, the, the fly guys are always the first ones to kind of break through barriers with these new species for whatever reason. I don't know why they seem like they're the guys that are more open minded towards embracing new fish. <laughs> for for sure. It's, it, it's funny what you say about getting a hook through one, because that even with just conventional fishing tackle when i'm i'm definitely i'm not above in any way shape or form uh tossing you know freeline and live bait at them i'm not against cut bait i do a lot of sight fishing for them 
here this year, I've actually for the first time started fishing out of a stand-up paddle board, and I've really enjoyed that because you can get up into mm-hmm. some shallow places, and I, I enjoy it more than than the fishing kayaks I've used because you can just see better, and and it really is in a way. It's kind of like the uh, the the redneck swamp version to me of like sight fishing for big reds or something like that out on the flats, right? Like you're kind of pulling around, you've got you know kind of a stout spinning setup, you know, stout rod. Uh, kind of finesse tackle almost and but getting that hook set man it's like you said i can't tell you how many times i've fought one all the way up to the boat and he wasn't really hooked he just had that point buried in bone right as soon as he got a good shake like like as long as you could use the full length of the rod and you had some line out and there was a little bit of a kind of a bungee effect it'll keep them on but i tell people like that is that's the one fish that I'm most likely to net once I once I pick up on there have there being a bowfin on the line I will almost always reach for a net and I I believe that my buddy had a few <laughs> that did that to him he he would he would get what he felt like was a good hook set and then halfway to the boat it would you know just fall to pieces and the fish would disappear what yeah. <laughs> are your what are your tips for for a good hook set and and what do you usually use do you use any type of leader like me I'm a, I'm a big fan of like a heavier you know, like 40 pound mono or something like that is a leader. I don't go with a wire yeah. because I feel like it's overkill, but what, what's your, what's your hook recommendations? I started with the wire leader the same way when I was younger, you know, you see a fish with teeth, you think you got to have wire. Then I moved to like fluorocarbon, generally no less than 40 pound fluorocarbon leader. And then I kind of realized the bowfin doesn't care. I hate to say, I mean, they, I mean, well, I don't hate to say that they do not care about high vis leaders. They don't care about how hard the leader feels in their mouth. I don't feel like you need fluorocarbon. What I've actually moved to that's benefited me is just heavier braid. So I will use a section of two to, yep, usually about two foot section. And this might sound crazy. People probably shake their head at this, but I'll actually use 150 to 200 pound braid as leader. Hmm. The reason that I do that is not because it's a crazy, overwhelmingly powerful fish. It adds a little bit of abrasion resistance, but what it does benefit you is for whatever reason, both and have this unique adaptation where they can spiral their body like a football, like an alligator. They they can death roll. I've never seen any other fish that can do it like they can. So they can twist the line horrendously. Braid just seems a little bit more supple. And I do a lot of bait fishing for them. Not ashamed of it at all. I've caught so I've you know thousands of them on lures, flies. I'm I'm at a stage now where generally I only like to chase the big ones. And I do that almost exclusively with baits and, and that just, you know, I don't know. It benefits you so many different ways. I just found that, you know, if they're going to be shy at all towards a leader, they'll be less shy to a braided leader because they can't really see that well anyway, but the braid is, is soft. You know, when they bite it, it's supple, it's soft, it's chewy. They're not going to detect it as easily. Then uh, they will bulldog hard in a straight line, but it's more direction change type fighting. They shake and they go crazy and they run left, and they run right, and they jump up, and they go down, they spiral and twist. So I need something that's pliable that moves with the fish. I mean, you can fold braid over and it's not going to kink. You know what I mean? It's like it, it. I just feel like it adds a little bit of benefit. So I actually just use simply a heavier strand of braid because I feel like it spins and twist a little bit better and it's softer to the bite. So as far as hooks go now, this is where I, I talk to a lot of diehard bow fin guys, but I've been doing it, you know, for a long time. And I feel like I'm probably the only guy that's caught them in as many States as I have I've caught them in seven States. I caught them in Arkansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, South Carolina, Virginia, Florida. So I've seen a lot of different geographic areas and I've understood some common denominators and some some fallacies. One, people think that when you set the hook on a bowfin, you have to set with all your might. You can read a lot of different magazine articles and listen to a lot of guys that fish for bowfin. A lot of them will really say that you have to like cross their eyes. That's like the one people like to say, oh, you've, when you set the hook, you got to cross their eyes and set it with all your might. I actually disagree. I think generally you're going to end up with a bent hook if you do that, and you're going to rip a bigger hole in their mouth that allows the hook to fall out of it. What I do, especially when bait fishing, is all you do is reel down until you feel the fish. That's the key. You got to reel down until you feel the fish, the pressure of the fish. They won't drop a lure if they start to feel you reeling down on them. And if they do, 
they'll come right back for it. That's the great thing about this fish. They'll come back time and time and time again. Even a lot of times, ones that shake free at the boat, you can come back five minutes later, they'll bite again. But I'll reel down until I feel fish, almost as if you're trying to engage a circle hook. And then it's a it's like a hard sweeping hook to the side, like parallel to the water, not an over the shoulder or over the head hook set. I'll hook to the side, just opposite the, of the direction that they're traveling. If you can ascertain that generally, that's easier to recognize when you're bait fishing, because you can see the direction that they're traveling. I use a sliding float. So I'll set opposite shoulder to the direction that they're going. And it's a slow, hard sweeping motion. So it's like a hard, swift application of pressure, not a whipping hard like you're trying to like drive it home type of hook set that has always worked better for me the other thing is i actually use smaller hooks i do not like big hooks for bowfin i'll use the size like 1-0 bait holder hook or octopus hook and those have always worked great for me i've caught bowfin over 13 pounds on small little hooks but a thicker wire gauge of hook is 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 gonna benefit you i've noticed a lot of the worm hooks you see for largemouth, they'll just bend them right out. I like straight shanked hooks. I do not like curved shank or, you know, I like straight shanked uh, worm hooks if you're going to be throwing weedless worms. But yeah, little things like that. It's funny. A lot of the things that, that you've said, I kind of approach the fish, even though it's freshwater fish, I approach it a lot of the times tackle wise and technique wise. We've got some inshore opportunities here and I, I did inshore growing up and then I kind of moved into freshwater. And then when I started chasing bowfin and getting more serious about them, I found myself going back to inshore tackle, right? Kind of the, the stouter inshore spinning rods. And then also kind of revisiting some of my old flounder rigs and, and stuff like that. They really are kind of a, uh, a freshwater inshore fish in, in a way as far as the size and how they fight. I, I could I could talk both in are kind of my little pet project. They're my they're my favorite little fish that I fish for here in my backyard on the Mobile Tensaw Delta. I could I could talk about them all day, but we do uh, unfortunately we kind of have some time constraints with the show. I definitely want to have you back on in the future because what I really want to pick your brain about is big bowfin. Yeah. I think I think that's a, a big part of the appeal of them for me is just how big they get. But if readers want to, or readers, sorry, if uh, if our listeners want to learn more, uh, where's a good place that, that they can see more of the information that you've got out there on Bowfin? Sure, I've I've written about them and blogged about them and done podcasts on on Bowfin extensively, probably more than anybody else ever. But I've got all that collected on my personal website, and that's www.boundless-pursuit. Com, so like boundless-pursuit.com, you know, saved me about $200 doing that when I was making my website, add a little hyphen in there, save some money. <laughs> there we go. But yeah, if you just go to like my blogs, there'll be trip reports and there'll be like informative articles and, they, and there'll be a little search. I mean, it's very user-friendly. Just type in the word bowfin, all kinds of stuff will come up. I've written about how to find big bowfin. I've written about how to find more bowfin. Bowfin on lures, bowfin on flies, a lot of breakdowns there. And I'm always happy to answer any questions if people want to, you know, my email contacts attached to the same website. Absolutely. Well, David, I, I really appreciate you being here on the show, and I'm sure that our listeners enjoyed it. Guys, if y'all want to learn more about bowfin, David is not joking. He has written on it pretty prolifically. And uh, I would consider him everything that I have ever read and then gone out and field tested myself in the water. He has not led me astray. So y'all could y'all could definitely start with the worst, worst teacher if y'all are looking at getting into doing a little bit of bowfin fishing. Uh, David, again, I really appreciate you. Look forward to hearing from you more in the future, sir. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Southeastern Pond Management. Since 1989, Southeastern Pond Management has been a leader in pond and lake management services. If you own a pond or lake anywhere in the Southeast, Southeastern Pond Management can evaluate the health of your pond and then work with you individually to put together the right plan to get what you want out of your body of water. Through electrofishing, liming, fertilizing, and stocking and weed control, Southeastern Pond Management is the one-stop shop to help you produce more healthy trophy fish than ever before. Schedule an obligation-free consultation today. Call 1-888-830-POND or email info at southeastpond.com. Also brought to you by L&M Marine. L&M Marine has something for everyone, from small hunting boats to pontoon boats, 
to bigger bay boat and offshore hybrids. Allen & Marine LLC prides itself on its customer service and knows how important it is to be taken care of and to have someone you can trust. They are locally owned and regularly support the surrounding community. Allen & Marine provides superior customer service and has an entire team that consists of professional sales members, finance experts, service technicians, and a knowledgeable parts and accessories staff to fully support you. Go visit their friendly, reliable, and experienced staff today. Allen & Marine is located six miles north of I-10 at 34600 Highway 59 in Stapleton, Alabama. You can also reach them by phone at 251-937-1380. Also by Texas Hunter. Every detail of the Texas Hunter Wrangler hunting blind has been designed for your comfort. Fully carpeted walls and ceiling provides a scent and noise barrier, while sealed windows keep bugs and pests from joining you on the hunt. A solid galvanized steel roof is sure to protect you from the elements and will never leak or rust. The Wrangler is available in the ground model or with a 4-foot or 8-foot tower model available for extra-wide, sturdy stairs. Visit TexasHunter.com to check out their wide variety of premium outdoor products. Built in America since 1954. All right, guys, welcome back. Second guest, we got Justin Dunham. Justin is the 2023 Mobtown Angler of the Year. He also won the most recent Nally Rally, the Grinnell tournament that they had. He's an accomplished kayak fisherman. Um, he's also got a YouTube channel, 8 Mile Drifter. And when I started researching Justin and I found that YouTube channel, I noticed that he fishes a lot of places here on the Mobile Tensaw Delta that are very near and dear to me. So I've definitely, I've been looking forward to talking with him. We started talking last week. And I'm glad that we finally got him on the show. Justin, how you doing this evening, sir? Doing good. Thank you for having me. First things first, like like talking with folks down here in the area. We've had a lot of growth here in Baldwin, Mobile County for recent years. So are you new to the area or have you been here for a while? Oh, no, sir. I've been here since uh, born and raised, 35 years. I got you. I got you. I'm a transplant myself. I, I like to think I've been here long enough to be local, but originally my gang's from up around Montgomery. We come down here when my dad was a kid, so I'm close to a lifelong resident, but uh, I'm I'm technically one of them dang old uh, transplants who were clogging up the Bayway. So. <laughs> Well, that's all right, too. Yeah, for, for sure. So the, the kayak tournament thing is is something that I've been meaning to get into more. I fish, and, and we got some guys who do some reports here in the Delta. You know, we got Dick McMillan. He comes on, and he gives us a good crappie report a lot of weeks. Now, I don't, we don't really have anybody here in the area that's done a lot of kayak fishing reports for us. Now, we've got on some of our other podcasts, I think the hosts for the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report and the Northwest Florida Fishing Report, they have some kayak anglers on there. But kind of tell me a little bit why why kayak fish here in the Mobile Tensaw Delta? All right. Well, first off, it's you know a lot cheaper. You know, you don't have to pay for your gas, your insurance, all the any maintenance fees, that sort of thing. And kayaks can get extremely shallow, like whenever the this winter weather that we're going to have pretty soon, it starts dropping the water out of places, kayaks can slip right on in. Um, so you got that going for you. And you can get really close to cover and things. You can be extremely quiet. And it's just a lot of fun. For sure. And I, I can tell you, somebody who has hunted and fished the Delta for, for a couple of decades now, a shallow draft is is hard to beat and that is right there at the top of my list of criteria for any boat that i go out on uh, because it, it stuff can change right this place is there's a lot of it's tidally influenced and the water levels can be very uh variable and and a lot of the fishing places that i have um i joke all the time like i bought a power boat and i really missed when i did more kayak stuff because there's some places back here some of those little hidden lakes or, or dead-end creeks that really the fishing doesn't get good until you've jumped your third or fourth log. You know, has, has that been something that's, that you've found right. is a lot of times there's a correlation between how many logs you jump and how big the fish get back there? I think so. And I think a lot of it is just because the boaters can't get back there. So, you know, the fish are not going to be as pressured. And like one of my favorite places to go is Jug Lake. And it really doesn't fire up until the water drops out and nobody can get in there. And those fish just kind of settle down a little bit and uh, some, some good crappie fishing bass fishing that's actually one of my best rental spots is joe lake um that's just one example of somewhere that's great yeah we were, we were actually just talking with david graham uh about rental fishing and it's funny you mentioned jug lake that uh i have i have stayed a lot of nights on those floating platforms back there um and rental fished and and done pretty good 
and and it really is a beautiful spot and it really is impossible especially right now i'm here on tensaw lake and i'm looking out in my backyard and across from the land and you can actually see mud flats uh the water's been super low here lately and and i know once that water falls out of bayou jessamine man you you about easier to walk back there in a pair of shorts than you are to try to get a boat back up in there oh yes sir it's uh some days it's tough for kayakers too but we you know, we can still manage it as long as uh, as long as you don't mind scooting a little bit. Well, tell me a little bit about, I know the Delta is a big place. And like like we was talking a little bit before we started recording, you, you mentioned a little body of water that I wasn't super familiar with, um, which is going to happen. I've, I've hunted and fished here for a long time, but mostly I'm kind of on the north end of the Baldwin County side of things. So the Tensile side of the swamp, most of my experience kind of north of 65 I actually, from when I went right. to South Alabama, I had a fair amount of experience with the southern side over on uh, on the Mobile side of, of the swamp. With the name on your YouTube channel being Eight Mile Drifter, I imagine you kind of more on the Mobile side of things than on the Tensaw side. Is is that correct? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, I'm from Eight Mile, so Chicxulub is kind of where I grew up fishing. You know, I'd ride my four wheeler down to the creek and go up and down the creek wading and that sort of thing. So, pretty good in that you know, clear tannic water. And then as I got older, I started going up the Mobile River, making longer trips out of Cedar Creek, you know, Paul's Bio, Bilbo, those sorts of places. So most of my experience is probably on this Mobile side, but started venturing over towards Rice Creek and stuff like that several years ago. And now what I do is every Saturday I'll go fishing somewhere and then the next saturday i'll go somewhere completely different so i try not to beat up the same place you know week after week for sure that that definitely that makes sense especially you talk about small places like rice creek and chickasabogue uh it, it doesn't take too terribly much before you can uh put enough hooks in enough miles that i i feel like it kind of changes the fishing particularly if you're doing doing catch and release uh, bass fishing and that sort of thing and, and you know something that's funny that you talk about Chickasabogue and some of that clear water that's not something that a lot of people would necessarily associate with the delta um, i remember from being in college Chickasabogue can definitely be a very pretty little you know sandy backwater waterway there's a lot of that stuff here that kind of feeds into the delta here on our side uh, over on the tensaw side we got some little blackwater creeks that are really different you know from what most people may think of just riding over i-10 and i-65 right and you see all that that brown chocolate milk water there's a lot of diversity that you can get to with a kayak is that mainly what you do is fish kind of the those smaller tributaries here in the delta well for the most part because that that's how i grew up so what i would do is this was back before iphones and all that i would get on my computer and get on google earth and i would kind of zoom out and i would look and see if there's any little oxbows or any sloughs that may have a ditch or something leading to them and, you know, even if it was three or four miles away, I would paddle as far as I could to get to it. And I would see if I could slip or slide my kayak into those places and just see if they had fish in them. And more times than not, you'd be really surprised at the quality of fish that were in those kind of places. For sure. It's funny, we were talking about that earlier in the show about kind of the adventure aspect of, of fishing some of these little backwater places right there and how that that three or four mile trip is kind of its own experience whether or not you catch fish but but a lot of the times it puts you in some really good fishing and i've i've got some places where you know you may have to walk a mile or two back through the woods before you can put a line in the water and i've got places throughout the state where i've pulled over and and just fished a bridge that you could tell nobody else is really fishing what what's that kind of fishing looking like right now how are the small creeks looking as we start to see these temperatures drop well, you know, the north wind that we're having is going to drop the water in a lot of those creeks. So I don't think that's going to be as good moving forward. I would focus more on those, you know, the mouths leading into places like that, where that water is going to start dumping out into the main bodies of water as we get this, you know, the tides are coming out, the north wind's blowing it out. I would focus more on those mouths instead of actually going deep into those backwaters if I'm bass fishing. We were actually Stephen Rockarts last week up on the Cobber River. He's a fly fishing guide, and he was saying the same sort of thing, that as, as the water levels drop, those creek mouths start to be more productive. What do you usually throw in a situation like that? So if the waters are not too terribly cold, I'll still throw a top water like early in the morning and then maybe switch over to a jerk bait once the temperatures drop a little bit. 
Like uh, if I was fishing this morning, I'll probably be throwing a jerk bait. But for the most part, I'm going to be throwing a topwater popper that walks because, you know, a translucent color. And it just looks like a small bait fish and kind of throw it out, twitch it, let it sit a little while. And they'll still smash it even if it's cool water. But once we get into freezing kind of temperatures, I'm going to start with a jerk bait, twitch it down a little bit, and then let it sit for several seconds. Talk about bass fishing. Um, I know one of the other guys that we have to do a lot of reports here, Dick McMillan, he does a lot of crappie fishing. Um, is that something that you dabble in yourself, Justin? Yes, sir. Whenever the you know the temperature drops a little bit and it cools off, I, I switch over and do a little crappie fishing. I'm uh, pretty old school with it. I don't have a bunch of electronics or anything, so I'm pretty much just jigging around treetops. And I got into the bait finesse thing just a few months ago. I'm trying to get my casting up with it. going to primarily be using that for white perch this winter. And uh, so far, it's turning out to be pretty fun. Now, tell me more about your bait finesse system, because I know that's going to be a new term to some of our listeners, and it's something I've actually got a big interest in. Um, I've been eyeballing them and kind of watching more options kind of kind of come to the market. What What is a bait finesse system? Right. So it's a bait caster, but it's a tiny bait caster, and it's made for throwing like, you can get down to like one-tenth of an ounce, one-sixteenth of an ounce weight. Where normally if you try to do that on a standard size bait caster, it just bird's nest with you immediately. The bait finesse, it has a very shallow spool and you're able to throw those lighter weights. And I mean, you're able to zing them out there just as far as you could like a heavy lure with a regular bait caster. And you put it on a, a very limber rod and it's just like throwing a spinning outfit, but you kind of have that same power and control that you do with a regular bait caster. It's a lot of fun. Which particular BFS reel do you have? So I got the Corrado BFS. I think it's about the equivalent of like a 50 size reel. So, you know, if you're familiar with like a standard 200 size bait caster, it's a lot smaller than that. And it only holds about 30 or 40 yards of line. Yeah, I've been eyeballing it. Have you been, you've been happy with the Corrado so far? I have been. It's uh, the only thing I'll say negative about it is on my first trip with it, the thumb bar that you would use to cast it kind of has this annoying little squeak but i put some oil on it and that's fine but it's you know casting it right out of the box it casts like a dream and whenever you hook into a fish i, I caught a few good grinnel on it on one of my previous trips and it takes out drag like a spinning reel so it's got that audible click 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 click, click when it goes out just like the spinning reel and you know whenever a big grinnel gets on that thing and bends it all over and starts taking drag it's a blast <laughs> I imagine it would be. I've I've caught a few grunnel by mistake, uh, or by accident, I should say, crappie fishing would 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 ultralight spinning tackle and uh even a small man, a little two or three pound grunnel, he will he will absolutely make your day on the system like that. Um I imagine you didn't get it to catch grunnel though, right? What what was your main purpose in picking that up? So I got the BFS for crappie, which I may call white perch, just kind of interchangeably, just to kind of cast out in those treetops and just kind of hop it out once I get to the edge of the treetop, let it sink down a few feet and then kind of hop it back to me. And I feel like with a bait caster, I can just feel the bite better. And, you know, you can feel that line jump when that white perch takes it and you just set the hook with a with a spinning rod and reel i just don't feel like i have the control that i would with a bait caster i've definitely in the past i have felt the same way something i really like about a bait caster is you know you're kind of sitting there with your thumb right there on that spool and right i i i enjoy that there's there's a lot of scenarios bass fishing or or any other type fishing even cat fishing i do a lot of channel cat fishing and you know, you can drop a bait out there and, and leave it free spooled and you've got your thumb right there and you can tell just the instant something starts messing with it. And I've thought a lot of times as light as crappie can hit sometimes, I, I enjoy and I've got a couple of nice ultralight crappie rods that are real sensitive. And, you know, you see people using high-vis, you know, mono lines, you know, you got you got designated, you know, you got fishermen who will tell people, oh, yeah, I'm a big line watcher. You know, I got I got a friend who's that way. He's like, hi, Nick, I'm a line watcher. Like, I'm not happy if I'm not watching that line move through the water. You got to watch that line in case it jumps or slows down or moves or goes slack. And I've, I've often thought that if you had 
just a teeny tiny little bait caster. You could probably pick up a few extra bites that way. And just once you get used to, and I fish with both, but man, if you've if you've had a weekend heavy throwing a bait caster and then you got to go back to flipping a bale on a spinning reel, it, it takes you a little bit to get used to it. You can definitely put more casts out, I feel like, with a bait caster. Oh, yeah. I'm glad to hear that you like it. That that may have, you may have just sold a uh, another reel for Shimano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the only negative I'll say about it, you know, is if you start comparing the different reels they can get pricey until you know you like it i wouldn't really go more than that two 250 range because uh they, they can get really high really quick in price well, well how did you do uh have you done some fishing with it here recently i did i went to uh paul's bio it's up the mobile river hopefully nobody tries to beat me up for saying that name but uh, i went way back there and i was trying to catch some perch and brim and things and I ended up catching just a few on it. And I had something really big break me off because I'm only using four-pound test. But I was throwing some Bobby Garland, little Moglo, straight tail. I forget the name of them, but they're the straight tail chartreuse ones mm-hmm. on a 116th ounce jig head. And I was throwing them out in about 15 foot of water, letting them sink and hop along. And I picked up a few, you know, nothing too wild, but I picked up just a few fish. I would have liked to have saw what broke me off. But, uh, I'm pretty sure it was a big rental, but I would like to have laid eyes on it. Man, you never know. Like I, that, that would not be unlikely. But I have caught crappie fish in those little Bobby Garland jigs and that little one sixteenth ounce jig. I've caught everything from from bowfin to bass to flathead catfish to chain pickerel. Any anything gets hungry will eat those little crappie jigs. So that's, right. that's one of the one of the bad things like you said four pound test i do a lot of fishing with four pound test even for bass in some of these little creeks i just feel like you you'll catch more fish on on lighter tackle just me uh but every, every now and then you you end up wishing that you had something a little bit stouter on there so uh i think you were talking earlier too you were saying that, that you'd gotten into some chain pickerel here recently weren't you i have it was that same trip it was uh, i went way in the back of paul's bow and it seemed like the further back I went, the more clear the water was. And, you know, those chain pickerel, they're primarily sight feeders. So the clearer the water, the better they can see. And they'll just come out and smoke whatever you throw at them. So I, I caught them on glide bait, caught them on popper. I had one take my popper, so I was a little upset about that. Caught them on soft plastics. It, I must have caught 20 or better of those things. They're they're definitely a fun fish, and it it's funny to hear. Some somebody who's who's a tournament winner, right? Tournament tournament bass fisherman who will uh who will sit there and be happy to catch a few bowfin and a few pickerel. I know they're uh like you said on clear water, man. It seems like they'll come twenty feet. And I've I've watched them come that far. I mean, I've I've watched them come a boat length to hit a bait and follow one all the way up to the side of the boat. So they're a super super sporty fish. They don't get really big, but uh. I think I think they fight harder. I'll be I'll be curious to hear your opinion. To, to me, pound to pound, a pickerel has got more fight in him than a bass. Is that would you agree? Oh, a hundred percent. Especially whenever you get to the ones that are you know twenty four plus inches long. They're really big ones. Yeah. Um. The the ones that'll take your whole spinner bait. But yeah, the, that's a it's a hard fighting fish, and I believe they would be more popular if they didn't have that wide bone and people could actually you know keep them and eat them. But they kind of get a bad rap. Cause you, you know, you just catch them and turn them loose. You can't really do anything with them, but they are a fun fish to catch for sure. Absolutely. Well, Justin, I really appreciate you being on the show today and, uh, I'll definitely, we'll be hearing from you more here in the future. Tell everybody again to all of our listeners, if they want to hear more from you, kind of follow along on your fishing, pick up on some tips here, local, uh, what's, what's your YouTube channel again? Sure. It's eight mile drifter and that's spelled out E I G H T M I L E. That's one word. And then drifter is a second word. It's on YouTube and it's a little stick man with a rod and reel. Whenever you find the icon. There we go, guys. I'm pretty good about telling you where I, where I go and what I use. I don't hold too much back because I try not to beat the same places up over and over again. But uh, yeah, if you want to check me out there, leave me a comment, subscribe. That'd be cool. There we go. Yeah. Everybody who's listening in local to the, the Mobile Tensaw Delta area, definitely go check him out because he, he fishes a lot of good spots and he's got some good information and he's just enjoyable to watch. So y'all go out, find that channel, support a local guy, 8 Mile Drifter. And uh, Justin, I appreciate you being on the show today, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Killer Doc.
Today, we're going to profile another common form of dock dysfunction, dirty dock. Have you ever cleaned up a nice mess of fish and then watched your wife's face in disgust when she sees your dirty dock as a result? It's happened to all of us who are cleaning fish on old, wooden fish cleaning tables that don't slope toward the water. You need dock enhancement. Killer Dock fish cleaning stations are marine-grade aluminum coated with a ceramic finish that makes cleaning your dirty dock a cinch. The scales and slime drain directly into the water, through the legs, or through the slots. You choose the style. Check out the best fish cleaning stations known to mankind at KillerDock.com. And by Fish Bites. Whether you're hitting the sand with set rigs, using traditional scent strips for pompano, or fishing the flats and marshes for speckled trout, redfish, and flounder, Fish Bites has something for you. Family owned and operated in St. Augustine, Florida, they pride themselves on making reliably consistent fishing products for anglers of all ages all around the world. Fish Bites baits and lures are made with pride in the Sunshine State here in USA. Check out the full line of scented saltwater and freshwater baits at fishbites.com. Well, folks, that wraps up this week's Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. If you'd like for us to email you the podcast, just text FISHING to 314-665-1767. Again, just text the word FISHING to 314-665-1767. Subscribe to our email list and we'll send you the new show each week. This week's Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Texas Hunter. Since 1954, Texas Hunter Products has delivered the finest quality fish and game feeders and hunting blinds in the industry. To learn more, visit TexasHunter.com. Also by Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks manufacture a variety of metal roofing systems to meet your needs. Whether you're putting a new roof on your home or sheeting a commercial building, they have you covered. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters. Also by Mallard Bay. Book your next guided hunting or fishing trip with thoroughly vetted guides or charters. Plan trips, buy gear, go experience. Mallardbay.com. And by Hilton's Real-Time Navigator. Bringing you the highest quality online satellite fishing charts since 2004. Your source for sea temps, allometry, currents, and watercolor at hiltonsoffshore.com. And by BucksIsland.com. Bucks Island has been in business since 1948 for all of your new and used boat needs, as well as motor sales and service. And now they have a pro-level tackle store. Boat and motor trade-ins are welcome. Visit them online at BucksIsland.com or give them a call at 256-442-2588.